the Senate box at pistol brace span repeal, plus Popat's Ken White on the ins and outs of Hunter Biden's plea deal. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. No, the devil's got no hold on me. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter right now if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. Uh, We, this week, will be talking about the hot topic, Hunter Biden and his new plea deal uh, that includes him copping to a gun charge. Uh, That means we're going to have somebody who knows what they're talking about when it comes to federal uh, crimes. And uh, that person is former prosecutor and current uh, criminal defense attorney, as well as co-host of the uh, of, of a legal podcast, Ken White, who is also known as uh, Pope Pat. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thanks for joining us. Stephen, thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And what's the name of the podcast again? It's Serious Trouble, about uh, high-profile people getting into serious trouble. Well, that, yeah. I mean, that's uh, this is why I wanted to have you on. Uh, here's a high-profile person who has gotten himself into serious trouble. and uh, But also, at the same time, somewhat complicated situation, given the nature of his deal, that I think a lot of people, including myself, don't have full grasp of exactly the details, which is why I wanted to have somebody who knows a little bit more about the topic on than I do. So, uh, yeah, why don't we start then with Hunter Biden and his plea deal slash um, pretrial diversion agreement. Um, Can you just walk us through exactly what he's agreed to here? Sure. So, uh Hunter Biden, who's been under investigation for years and has been negotiating with Department of Justice for years openly, uh, has agreed to plead to, first of all, two tax misdemeanors. Uh, If you want to get hyper technical, this is Title 26, Section 7203. That makes it a crime to willfully fail to file a tax return when you're Mm. supposed to. Uh, And then he's also not pleading to but agreed to enter a diversion program for a charge of possessing a gun while um, a prohibited person, specifically someone who is an addict or user of illegal drugs. And that's under Title 18, Section 922, which I know you know and write a lot about. Yes. And the key point there, too, because I've seen a lot of misreporting on this, he's not copying to lying on the background check form when he bought the gun. Uh, he's copying to this this charge of uh, possessing the gun while being a drug user. Uh, and uh, actually, I was wondering if you could shed any light as to why they would have gone that direction instead of the background check form. It's a little speculative. It may be that because the um, the lying charge, the 1001, is a little harder to prove and that you have to prove like he was willfully lying, that he realized you know, at that moment, oh, I'm an addict or, Mm. you know, oh, I'm a habitual user or whatever. That's the the, the intent required. Can he still be charged with with that crime later down the line? Or how does this, I mean, I assume once you strike a deal like this with federal prosecutors, they're not coming back around to try and get you over basically a parallel crime. 
Well, you got to you got to read the back of your ticket really carefully, Stephen. You got to look at your plea agreement because it spells out exactly what they're agreeing to. And generally, it says we won't charge you further for this set of facts, um, but this deal binds only us, not other districts, other states, whatever. Hmm. But in in the vast number of cases, right? If you resolve this with a deal, they would not be coming back based on the same set of facts to charge you again. Okay. So, uh, I mean, I know his lawyer has said that they they feel that this closes the investigation into him. Um, I think that the district attorney in Delaware was, or uh, the U.S. attorney, uh, who was a Trump holdover, who was looking into all this from before uh, Hunter's father became president, but uh, has said something along the lines of this might not be completely over. I guess there's a little bit of uh, uncertainty at that point. Well, there's there's uh, a line in the press release that says the investigation is ongoing. That could mean something, but it just could be boilerplate. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about following crim- federal criminal law is that a ton of the stuff you see in the documents uh, or in press releases or stuff like that, you think, why did they put that in there? And they put that in there because it's been in there since 1980 or something. Uh, <laughs> it's not a, a thoughtful thing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it sure seems like at least as far as the gun purchase situation goes or gun ownership, uh, that that's resolved by this deal. But speaking of which, what exactly, as far as what's been reported, I think the New York Times had the details. We don't have the plea agreement, uh, but we have reporting on it from uh, the New York Times that indicates there are two uh, conditions for this pretrial diversion program. Um, And actually, before we get into that, pretrial diversion, right? What exactly happens here? He's being charged with this, but not really. Explain it for anyone who's not a lawyer, I guess. Sure. The federal system, pretrial diversion just means that you've been charged, but they're going to suspend all proceedings. And if you stay out of trouble and do whatever it is the deal requires you to do for a period of time, then at the end, it'll be dismissed you won't be further prosecuted. You won't have a conviction. And why is so, that different from like probation? Well, because with probation, you wind up with a conviction. So okay. probation is part of a criminal sentence. So to get probation, you have to be convicted of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the federal system recognizes, oh, sometimes maybe they don't want someone to have a conviction for something. First time offenders, young people, extremely sympathetic circumstances, that type of thing. So sometimes you can get a diversion. It's more common in some districts than others. Uh, It's not particularly common here in LA. It's more common on the East Coast, I understand. Uh, But it's certainly a known thing. This is not a unique case. Okay. And uh, so he won't be a felon. That's not part of this deal. He's he's agreeing to plead guilty to misdemeanors, but this the felony charge, which is the gun charge, that is in this pretrial diversion, which um, as long as he follows the conditions, which we'll get into in a second here, he won't become a felon at the end of it. That's Basically. correct. Okay. Now the pretrial conditions. One of the interesting things. Uh, so the two that we have information on so far, um, one of them is the same punishment as if he had been convicted of a felony, which is that he can't own guns ever again. Um, is that, is that a normal condition? How does that work? How can you give up your gun rights for life under a pretrial diversion program like this? 
Well, I mean, you can contract away your rights all the time, and we do it every day. And you can contract away rights in uh, plea resolutions of cases and investigations. A very common one is, you know, you have a right to appeal uh, your sentence, but it's very common when you plead guilty to a federal crime that they make you give up that right as part of the, the deal. Uh, similarly, uh, if you want a really good deal, and diversion is a, a good deal, then um, it's not surprising that they'd do something that uh, make you give up something or make you agree to something that you might not want to do. Hmm. I, and I think when you and I were talking earlier, you pointed out it's not clear that uh, that Hunter Biden was really into guns before or owned one before or anything like that. So we don't really know what this means to him. No. But it's certainly an important – it's a significant constitutional right he's giving up for life. Yeah. Uh, the other the other uh, condition seems much more uh, run-of-the-mill obvious, which is that he can't do drugs for 24 months. Um, uh, and I, so what happens if he fails either one of these conditions? Well – there are two kind of sets of consequences. One set is that no matter what his sentence is you know, on the tax uh, misdemeanors, there's going to be a condition of probation if he gets probation or supervised release if he if he spends a term in jail that he not do illegal drugs and not break the law. So it would be a violation of that and that would pose the chance that he would get revoked, meaning if he's on probation – they would haul him in. They might revoke probation and, and put him in jail. If he's on supervised release, uh, think of supervised release kind of like what parole used to be. It's a term of supervision after you're done with jail. Um, you could be sent back to jail. So there's that side of it. On the diversion side, not as clear. We, we're going to need to see what the deal says. But in theory, they could decide to go through with prosecuting um, the gun charge, the 22, excuse me, the, the 18 USC 922 G3. Now, there would be some problems with that, um, they, but, uh, you know, those may be surmountable, but it, there would be constitutional problems with it. Yeah, and we'll get into some of that uh, right. later on the show for sure, because there, there was a report that if, if this had gone to, uh, you know, trial that Biden was going to use – um, Second Amendment defense, uh, which, sure. is, which is actually a fairly interesting thing in the post-Bruin landscape. And we'll talk about why in a little bit, especially when we're comparing his situation to some of the other people who've faced this kind of charge before. But uh, but, you know, overall, I, I, I wanted to get your your take, your feeling on um, whether this is a sweetheart deal. Right. It's been called that by a lot of uh, Republicans reacting. I know that there have been gun gun rights groups that have been um unhappy with the situation as well. Do you feel like, well, let's just start with the specific things he's agreeing to and the, the charges that were brought. Uh, Cause there's always the, one part of this is like what was charged and whether the punishment for that is fair and right. what wasn't charged. And these other things that, that uh, you know, Hunter Biden has done that people, or at least he's been accused of doing um, that aren't involved in this particular uh, plea agreement. So let's just start with what he was charged with. Do you think this outcome, uh, this deal that he struck, from what we know of it, is a fair one? So in terms of what he's having to plead guilty to, the two misdemeanor counts for failing to file return, my answer is yes. This is a relatively normal pre-indictment disposition. You're going to get a little better deal if they don't you don't make them indict you and you, in effect, agree before even being charged 
to plead guilty. Um, he could hypothetically be charged more harshly with a felony of tax evasion, but practically speaking, that's hard to prove. That's not just willfully failing to file a return. It's, it's basically having an intent to deceive, um, the government. And, and usually you have to do something affirmative, like file a false document or hide assets or something like that. And if you're just like in a cocaine haze for a couple of years and you don't file anything, that's not really tax evasion. It's also a tough charge to make uh, the more serious felony of tax evasion because um, it, an incorrect belief about what the law is, uh, is a defense, even if it's completely unreasonable. So if Hunter Biden thinks dudes on crack don't have to file taxes, if he thinks that sincerely, even if it's completely stupid, then that's not tax evasion. Uh, so uh, that's how Wesley Snipes got off the hook on uh, his felony tax charges, most likely. Yeah. So because so, I, I don't know much about the tax <laughs> side of it, right. um, so I can't ask you too many follow ups there. But uh, but the gun charge, this is um, my understanding. And, you know, from my reporting over the, the last couple of years following this case, I've, I've spoken with uh, Professor Drew Stevenson, who has written uh, about this specific charge. This is a. Um, this is about people who uh, you are drug users that own guns. Anyone who's a drug user and owns guns or, is a felon uh, under federal law. And usually, you see this crop up with things like um, medical marijuana being legalized in a lot of states, and how that interacts with uh, federal law, where it's still illegal and still um, implicates this this prohibition. But uh, as far as St Professor Stevenson says, um, this is a pretty uncommon charge as a standalone charge. And, and what I mean by standalone charge, because obviously he pled to two other charges, but they don't have anything to do with the gun purchase. Uh, the, that the stuff surrounding the gun is just this one charge of him being a drug user and possessing firearms. Right. So it is extremely rare. He said there's uh, only about 200 convictions a year where that's the only charge. Uh, I would be surprised if it's that high, frankly. Uh, well, I would say one point of context, just real quick right. on that is he did tell me that that is where there's a conviction, which means that um, his belief there were probably other charges before that basically the way this gets used in practice, and we'll talk about some specific examples later, but is that it's a tack on charge. It's something that you add when there's a more serious either drug crime or gun crime involved. And uh, it's either enhances the sentence that the, the suspect gets or it can be used as a fallback, basically. If it's harder to prove the other crimes, if you catch someone with, you know, a pound of, of uh, you know, meth in their car and a loaded gun, you know, you, maybe you can charge them with a higher level drug crime or that's as a trafficker or a dealer, but you can also charge them with just this uh, possession crime, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's a crime that you almost never see in isolation, not connected to something else. So it's, it's the type of crime that, like you said, is this like kitchen sink charging where we're going to get this person for every single thing we can find, or it's uh, something you charge when you can't find another charge, but you really don't like the person. And so the case you brought up is uh, that case where they charged the mom with this when uh, the young kid yeah. took the gun into school and a teacher was accidentally shot. That's a classic example of 
we're going to cast around to find something we can charge this person with. But it, it's, right. it's, I mean, in America right now, I think the statistics I saw most recently, or they estimate around 60 million people have used illegal drugs or abused prescription drugs in, in any given year. And a lot of those people own guns and, uh, you know, no significant portion of them are getting charged, nor is there any serious effort to charge any significant part of them. So this is something this is something about federal law that that a lot of people don't realize it's a little scary is that there are all sorts of extremely broad, extremely flexible laws that huge groups of Americans are technically guilty of that they can use against you if you want. So that's not a good thing, in my view, as a criminal defense attorney. But right. here, um, the types of situations where you see this charged are, for instance, when they're when they're doing sort of task force actions or sweeps, you know, we're going to bring in the feds to help us take out all the gang members in this town. A few of them get arrested and this is the only thing they can find to charge them with. It gets charged like that. It gets charged when, like you said, they take down someone for a bunch of other things and the federal prosecutor's pissed, so they throw this in, too, on top of everything else. Sometimes it gets charged as a vehicle to charge someone something more lenient if they're ex uh, extenuating circumstances. But it's a really uncommon charge. I never saw it in the six years. Um, I was a federal prosecutor. I, I haven't seen it uh, as a defense attorney, and it's only in unusual circumstances. Okay. The other thing to note about it, uh, Stephen, is that it's relatively lenient in terms of punishment. So I've seen a lot of people claim, well, you know, when the government comes after my gun clients, they come and they do years in prison. Yeah, well, that's because that's, they're that's being the charged with different things. Right. right. Is that basically this charge in theory could carry up to 10 years in prison with it. And Biden is getting a pretrial diversion program that features no, um, no prison time at all. Uh, so yeah, but, but, how does that comport with how this is usually handled? It doesn't at all. So uh, federal sentencing, uh, the maximum sentence is rarely relevant. Uh, the way the sentence is determined is under a system called the federal sentencing guidelines, uh, which is an extremely, someone would say, needlessly complex and geeky set of formulas and numbers uh, depending on how geeky you are, it's either like filling out a tax return for a mid-sized business or like creating a second edition Dungeons and Dragons character. Uh, so, it, it, and under those guidelines, this particular crime uh, of being an addict in possession of a gun has a recommended sentence that's quite low. You know, in, in looking at the guidelines to prepare for this today, um, my read of it is someone without a criminal history who, you know, was just an addict in possession of the gun, the recommended range would be 10 to 16 months. The judge would have discretion to go lower than that. And even if the judge were being a stickler, it's in a zone of the guidelines where you can do half of that in a halfway house and half in prison. So the idea that this crime typically gets a lot of time is just not right. Okay. But uh, what about the pretrial diversion program being used here. Is that a sweetheart thing for Biden in particular or in someone in the same circumstance who's pleading to two misdemeanors and and this particular gun crime, are they going to get that same treatment? I don't see it as a sweetheart deal for him. And here's why. He's pleading to two federal tax misdemeanors in a way that someone in his circumstance uh, would typically do. Um, you know, we're hearing 
reporting that they've promised to recommend probation. We don't know if that's true or not. I'm a little skeptical. That would be fairly lenient if it's true, because the guidelines would seem to be a little higher than that. But it's the judge who makes that call, what sentence he gets. But the thing is that if it were anyone but Joe Bi- uh, Hunter Biden, then I don't think they'd be making him do anything with a gun charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only reason they're been dropped or yeah, it would it would have been wouldn't have been pursued at all. Uh, the only reason they're doing it is the man went and basically boasted about it in a published yeah. autobiography, uh, which as a defense lawyer, I'm going to ask you all out there not to do. Um, and second of all, because he's Hunter Biden and they're bending over backwards not to seem like they're cutting him some sort of deal. So mm. I think if one of my clients, a relatively obscure person, and in the course of the tax investigation, they learned that at some point he was doing crack and he had a gun. I, I, I don't have any concern that they would charge that. Okay. And so, I mean, this is uh, kind of a uh, becoming a theme among our political class where they're, they're almost forcing these prosecutors into doing something in their cases because, uh, you know, Hunter Biden, um, you know, this I mean, the story of how this all happened is pretty bizarre in and of itself. Right. This is 2018. He buys this gun while he's, um, uh, you know, using drugs, uh, using crack cocaine, uh, according to himself. Right. Um, and uh, the woman that he's seeing at the time, who also happens to be his brother's widow, uh, finds the gun, is afraid that he might use it on himself. Uh, apparently. And her solution to this was to throw it in a dumpster behind a grocery store where, which I would think 99 times out of a hundred, that that guy's probably just going to end up in a landfill and no one's going to even realize this happened. Right. Um, but in this circumstance, somebody dug through that, that dumpster um, and then turned it over to the local police, which is another thing that would seem unusual, right? Yes. That somebody who's digging through a dumpster and finds a gun actually turns that gun into the cops. Uh, another kind of surprising thing. Then uh, there's a report from Politico where the, the store owner who sold this gun to uh, to Biden said that the Secret Service showed up and tried to take the uh, background check form uh, records for the sale, uh, which he refused to turn over, rightfully so, because the Secret Service has no jurisdiction and wasn't even providing protection to Hunter Biden at the time. Um, that's another weird twist, but then, uh, you know, th- this all comes out mainly because of the secret service thing. There wasn't a lot of attention paid to Hunter Biden having a gun until that happened, it became sort of a political scandal. And, um, at that point, a few weeks later, Hunter Biden's uh, autobiography came out. Right. And, uh, the thing is initially there wasn't a lot of it's fairly difficult, my understanding, at least from what Professor Stevenson says, that that it's fairly difficult to prove somebody is addicted to a drug in this circumstance of when they go to buy a gun. Um, right. When they're talking about whether they lied on the background check to prove that they um, were addicted or that they were knowingly lying. And uh, so you have to not just show that they've used drugs at some point in the past, but that is a continuing thing um, during the period where they purchased and owned the gun. And there wasn't evidence for that necessarily at the time in 28, uh, when this first came out, I think it was actually 2021. And until Biden himself 
did a media tour for his book where he talked about how he was smoking crack every 15 minutes. That's a quote from the book, obviously probably somewhat of an exaggeration, but, um, and, and it's at that point, it's harder to not do anything if you're the prosecutor looking into this case, right? Yeah. So there, there are a couple of elements here. I mean, federal uh, criminal prosecution only hits a tiny, tiny percentage of the cases it could. So getting charged with a federal crime is a little like getting struck by lightning. The feds have much more uh, more resources than the state does. Um, they have the ability to do things really slowly. They have all these institutional advantages and they spend those by only taking a relatively small number of cases and hoping that like the deterrence factor will help them out. But one of the ways um, that works out is that if you get noticed, you're more likely to get charged and then you're kind of screwed because they tend to only move forward when they have a very strong case. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, blowing through a stop sign in front of a cop. Even if the cop doesn't typically pull people over for stop signs, if you if you blow the stop sign right in front of the cop, they're going to say I got to I got to pull you over. Um right, right. same thing with this. If you if you basically wave it in their face, uh they are going to think we just institutionally we have to do something about this. Yeah. That that's kind of what it felt like when I was watching this unfold. It's like, well, he's out here saying he was addicted to drugs when he bought this gun while he's being investigated for that fact. And it's like, well, what are they supposed to do at that point? One um, of the most constant themes I'd say of the last 10 or so years is this huge gulf between what is good politics and good PR and good marketing on the one hand, and what is good strategy for not going to prison on the other. And there's a big gulf between those two and, and people have found it out to their yeah. regret. And I think that you also touch on something that might explain some of the motivation or some of the inspiration for why people are still upset with this deal, even if the deal itself, based on the specific charges brought, might be fair or not absurd, at least. Um, it's because he's, there's all, you know, there's, all all kinds of evidence of him using drugs and doing all sorts of uh, untoward things. And he's got shady business dealings. He's got all these accusations against him. And most of that is not involved in this charging. And I think that that also lends this um, air of, well, is this really fair? Is he getting special sure. treatment because he's the president's son? Um, you know, and, and, and that's where I think it's, it's hard to, it, it's, it's hard to make up your mind exactly about, well, um, you know, he might not have been charged with this at all if he wasn't Hunter Biden. But right. If he wasn't Hunter Biden, maybe he'd be charged with other things. It's it's hard to you know look at the totality of it and um, and and, you know, try to be fair minded about the whole thing and not just, you know, picking a, a tribe or a partisan side sure. when you examine this. Right. But let's let's look at that for a second, though. So, like, he's doing drugs all over the place, sometimes on video, but mm -hmm. generally people only get hooked up and prosecuted for doing or having drugs when they're caught with them. Uh, I mean, the cops don't go and say, hey, I see this rap video. Let's go investigate whether that was real drugs in the video. Uh, that, that's just not something they do. You can have a YouTube channel where you're, you know, doing whatever you want to do in terms of drugs and no one's going to investigate you or, or charge you. I think the thing that people are, are really upset about is this concept that he's involved in all in some sort of, you know, influence peddling and some sort of yeah, ske too. skeevy getting huge amounts of money 
uh, because of his connection to his father, now the president. And the truth there is that uh, I'm sure they looked at that, but influence peddling isn't inherently a federal crime. So if you don't have actual bribery, if you don't have other certain indicia of crime saying, hey, put me on your board of directors, you know, my dad is a senator or the president or whatever, is not a federal crime. It may be sleazy, but it's just not. Yeah, and and we don't need to get too deep into the all the whole Hunter Biden right. cinematic universe thing going on here. <laughs> There's plenty of uh, other people who are more informed about the details of all the different allegations. Uh, but I, I just wanted to speak a little bit sure. to the general atmosphere of why people might look at this deal, and even if you can articulate why, based on the, what he was actually charged with, this isn't um, an insane. Uh, sweetheart deal necessarily, people might not be satisfied by that. Um, And then at the same time, you also have to look at the other, one of the other reasons would be the politics of it, right? There's, uh, you you have President Biden, who is a staunch gun control advocate, who is working to tighten gun restrictions in the country, right? Uh, Whose ATF just this month reiterated that they will still charge these crimes in Minnesota, which just decriminalized marijuana, and, and there's many other states that do that, the ATS position has never changed on this, that they this remains illegal, that they will prosecute you, they will um, you know, investigate and arrest you for it, and you could be prosecuted, uh, even if perhaps in practice it doesn't happen a ton, that's still the stated position, and the president's politics are that he wants more restrictions on guns, yet his son commits a federal felony, a gun crime, and instead of getting jail time, he gets a diversion program. Well, I think people have a perception that the the children, families of the powerful and famous and rich get a better deal, and I don't think there's any question that they do. Uh, and I can see they're highlighting this particular issue. I think it's shameful if the ATF is going to keep prosecuting people who own a gun and use marijuana in states that have decided uh, to make marijuana legal. I don't, I think that's terrible as a matter of federalism and then all sorts of other reasons. Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously that, Congress a, plays a role there. The president yes. can't necessarily, he can't change the law, although he has changed interpretations of the law to make them stricter since well, he's been president when it comes to can, gun laws. But He can change priorities. Yeah. So they've changed priorities about enforcing the still existing prohibition, federal prohibition on marijuana in states where it's legal. Uh, things like that. Uh, but it, yeah, it's it's a fair point that there seems to be a discrepancy. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's been the main criticism that I've seen from, like, the National Shooting Sports Foundation, uh, the, the uh, Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, which is the sister group for the Second Amendment Foundation. They focused mainly on the hypocrisy of it, sure. uh, of, like, Joe Biden's position on guns and then his son um, getting relative, at least what they call relatively lenient treatment um, uh, when he commits a gun crime. Uh, And it kind of goes back to this idea that there's lax prosecution of current gun laws. Um, Do you think this is a legitimate example of that or are they, they, you know, politicizing it too much? What's your take on it? Well, I think it's fine to think that there's hypocrisy or there's laxness, but I think it should be informed by an accurate picture of what really happens in the system. So a lot of people kind of assume, like, if there's a crime and the government finds out about it, it gets prosecuted. And that's not really the case. Again, the, the feds hear about 
all sorts of federal crimes and they only investigate a very small number and an even small number get prosecuted. So the laxness of um, gun charges and gun prosecutions under existing law is a is a literally guns and butter decision. It's a decision about how much money to allocate to the Department of Justice and the various agencies to uh, to investigate, charge and prosecute those cases. Uh, they could reallocate out and then some other area is not going to have as much money. Uh, but to the extent people are saying that this is unfair because anyone else would have gotten prosecuted and would have taken a felony for this. That's not true. Uh, as we talked about at the top of the episode, this is just so rarely charged. And it's almost always when there's some other X factor uh, bringing it in. Okay. And uh, we mentioned one example of another person in a similar situation, the, the mother of the child who, the six-year-old who shot their teacher, right. uh, took, took the mother's gun and shot the teacher. She was charged that seem that certainly seems to be a case where they're using this charge in lieu of being able to charge her for something else. Uh, but let's let's talk about two other specific examples. Uh, well, let's talk about one example that's come up, uh, sort of from pop culture that I think is is probably a really bad um, uh, comparison. Which is uh, so there's a rapper named Kodiak Black who was uh, charged with this same crime and convicted and served three years or sentenced to three years in prison um, a little while back and his lawyer came out and said that, uh, you know, this is an example of the two tier justice system. And uh, because Hunter Biden didn't get prison time for his uh, with his deal. What would you say about that situation? Because Kodiak Black, my, my understanding is that his background is quite different. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he had a uh, impressive criminal record and I think that the conduct there involved repeated lies in order to get a larger number of guns and that he was prohibited uh, as a, as a felon from having anything to do with. So I don't think they're remotely comparable. Uh, They, they do. I mean, if Hunter Biden uh, were already a felon and had the gun, I think it's more likely he would get charged with a felon in possession and then he'd be looking at real jail time. So again, I think it's a little bit of apples and oranges there. Yeah. And uh, so, but let's talk about two cases that I think are a little bit closer, at least in the sense that the people charged didn't have a long rap sheet uh, beforehand. Um, and uh, and also, we mentioned this at the top, but Hunter Biden, there was a, a story again from the Times that indicated he was going to use a Second Amendment defense if this had gone to trial. And you know, I suppose it still could, like we talked about earlier, if he violates this, this diversion program in some way, maybe we'll this will end up happening anyway, but um, the two, there are two cases recently since uh, Bruin was handed down in 2022, where federal judges have called into question the constitutionality of this exact prohibition that Hunter was charged under. And um, one is it was a, a federal judge in Oklahoma. Uh, it was a case for a man named Jared Michael Harrison, who was pulled over and found with marijuana and a loaded gun in his car. And he was charged for um, being in possession, you know, a drug user in possession of a firearm. And, um, and his conviction was tossed by this federal judge as in being not compliant with the second amendment under Bruin. The second example is uh, a judge in Texas, 
who was um, dealing with a case where a woman was charged for having, this is again, she had marijuana and a gun, but also her husband, she was charged for transferring um, firearms and ammunition to her husband, who was a user of uh, multiple controlled substances, including uh, cocaine, like um, what Hunter has uh, said he used. And so uh, both of those were tossed, both those cases, as um, the judges determined that this statute can't hold up to Second Amendment scrutiny. Um, do you think those cases, uh, those charges are sort of more uh, better analogs to what Hunter was charged with? And do you, what do you think of the potential constitutional challenge he could have uh, perhaps undertaken here? Well, first of all, they are closer. They are more analogous. Um, I don't know as much about the first one, but I think that was one where the police were looking at him and thought there were more serious things going on, but this is the only thing they could find. Mm -hmm. um, second one, there was involved a, a larger number of guns and guns being transferred between people, which is, as you know, something the ATF uh, is always super concerned about. So those both had some sort of X factor. Uh, and I think that the judges read, I'm, I mean, I'm not a Second Amendment lawyer, uh, but I, I think the, set, the judges read uh, of the Supreme Court's decision is a reasonable one. And one that if I had a case right now under 922, I would probably be trying to make about all sorts mm -hmm. of subsections of that law. Uh, I think I think the field's wide open on these arguments right now. So Hunter Biden um, may actually be giving up his right to constitutionally challenge the charge in the plea agreement, which is something oh, else really? we want to see. So if I were a betting man, I would say that uh, when we see the plea agreement, it's going to say that he's uh, agreed to waive indictment by grand jury on this information, agree to enter a diversion program, and agree to waive any constitutional challenge to the charge itself um, mm -hmm. in the event that he violates diversion and comes back. I, that's, that's an educated guess. I didn't know that was an option. So this is why I like to have people on who know more about the subject than I do. Stephen, but, any um, right you have, the government will ask you to waive. <laughs> usually, uh, usually not a bad idea. Although I will say uh, my one thing I would ask on that point, because, you know, obviously as a firearms journalist, yes, it would be much more interesting to me if Hunter Biden had fought this charge on constitutional grounds and we've gotten a uh, U.S. v. Biden Supreme Court case out of it, uh, that would be quite, in, in the year 2024, right, that it would all be quite uh, the political story. But uh, my guess is that if you were his attorney, you would uh, advise him to take this deal over trying to challenge the constitutionality of this federal law. Is that is oh, hell right? yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, diversion, uh, you know, not being convicted of, the, of a felony, uh, not having this and, you know, challenging the constitutionality of a law in federal court is a big enterprise, expensive, stressful, um, no guarantee it's going to work uh, and so on. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's a very clear, easy call if you're, you're in that situation. The only way I wouldn't do it is if I thought he there was no way that he could 
uh, last out the two years on diversion. If I had grave doubts about that, I'd probably find a different path. Yeah. Uh, so that tells me that uh, his lawyers think that he's at a place now where he can do it. Okay. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, it just as a general point, I know everybody's always cheering for constitutional challenges. And I think that the general public likes to think that, well, if you think your rights have been violated, you should take it all the way to Supreme Court. But in, in real life, you don't necessarily want to be that Supreme Court defendant, right? Right. It's not because, a pleasant experience. Because first of all, he doesn't have an automatic right to go to the Court of Appeals before he gets convicted and sentenced. You know, he sure. could ask for some sort of emergency appeal. That's not likely to work. But if he uh, if he's being prosecuted and he uh, files a motion to dismiss on the grounds it's unconstitutional, judge says no. Now you've got to go through trial and sentencing and appeal, and you're likely in jail while you're waiting for your appeal. So that's not appealing. Uh, so, I mean, not everyone wants to be the test case. It's, it's often not fun to be the test case. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm also curious uh, of your take on how this might affect other uh, defendants in Hunter Biden's same situation. Like this is a very high profile uh, deal that's now been made with the president's son. Um, is this going to have any effect on how federal prosecutors approach these same kinds of cases going forward or, or not really? I expect that um, other people who get charged with this quite rare charge, 922 G3, will raise the argument that, hey, you know, the president's son got a sweetheart deal. Why am I not getting it? They'll, they'll raise that argument in plea negotiation. They may mm -hmm. even raise it in front of the judge at sentencing. Uh, but it probably won't have a big impact. I don't foresee any change in uh, the Department of Justice general approach to this, which is only to use it in cases with some sort of X factor uh, or, you know, where they're trying to get the person for something. And this is what they've got or where it's just being thrown onto the pile or things like that. So I, I don't think there'll be a lot of change. Um, the concept of selective prosecution, which you've heard about and, and people raise, um, someone uh, charged with it would really have to show that other people who are similarly situated aren't even being charged, which is not the same as him getting a sweetheart deal. So I, I don't see a lot of changes from it. I see a lot of rhetoric coming. I think we're going to hear in every gun case from here uh, to the end of time, you know, what about Hunter B Biden's diversion? Yeah, I probably. Right. I yep. mean, uh, next time Kodiak Black is, uh, uh, up there for charges because it doesn't <laughs> seem like that guy is uh, given his 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 previous rap sheet uh, that this is his last go around. I'm sure he will raise that in court as well, uh, and and not illegitimately so, right? I mean, this is a high profile. What the what the DOJ does here uh, probably should resonate throughout the rest of uh, how it handles things. Uh, or at the very least, defendants can make that case that it ought to. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of people are going to be using this in a partisan way, and I don't think you can ignore the partisan issues here, but it's a good thing for Americans to challenge their government about whether or not people who are children of the rich and powerful uh, uh, get special deals and special breaks. I would be thrilled if we all did it more often in a more bipartisan way. Uh, you know, as a criminal defense attorney, you're frustrated to always see people kind of either loving law enforcement uh, or hating it when they're going after their guy. 
uh, with and it just switching depending who's in the dock. Uh, mm. But it's it's generally a good thing, I think, for people to be uh, energized about these issues. Yeah, uh, I mean, I agree with it, and I think um, regardless of who the person is that's catching a charge like this, we should examine whether or not uh, it actually is the right way to treat the situation. Like, is it is a pretrial diversion program for somebody who was uh, who's being charged with having a gun while being addicted to drugs? The better solution, if they don't have a cr previous criminal record the right path. I mean, it doesn't sound like an absurd path to take. Um, if they now, you know, if he violates any of this deal, then, you know, then perhaps you carry on to the next set of consequences. But, um, you know, would you want someone that you care about in the same circumstances to be offered the same deal uh, or, or somebody you don't know and has no connection to, uh, politics whatsoever offered the same deal, would would it still be a fair deal? I think that's the right way to approach it with all the considerations that we talked about as well earlier, like, you know, his influence peddling and uh, the other evidence of criminality that exists, you know, is he getting well off light on that stuff? That's a harder thing to judge. The, so right. the best we can do is look at what he actually got charged with, what the deal is, whether that's Competent. I think we've done it. You've done a pretty good job of laying that out, uh, your view of it. Yeah, I mean, I think probably most people, it would have gone that uh, it's the same deal on the taxes and they would have made sure that the uh, conditions of probation and supervised release included drug testing. Maybe they would have added on the gun ban as a term that he negotiated, something like that. Uh, but they wouldn't have done the separate diversion because for no other reason, it's just more paperwork. Uh, mm -hmm. That doesn't really substantively change things a lot. But I think here there were appearance issues probably contributed to it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we appreciate you coming on and given the detailed insight that you were able to for this. I think we got a lot of new information that hasn't really been out there. You know, there's a lot of base level takes on this, but I really wanted to get in and understand the context of it you know, as best we can. And I think you really helped us do that. So where can people go if they want to, you know, hear more of your analysis or, or read some of your work? So uh, the Pope Hat Report is a sub stack, uh, but uh, more of my time is spent on uh, Serious Trouble, uh, which is a, a podcast that we talk about cases like this. Just recorded actually our episode about this today. Wonderful. So, yeah, people should head over to that uh, once they're done with, with this episode and, and check it out And uh, if they want to go even deeper on the topic. Well, thank you, Stephen. And thank you, by the way, for your work in terms of talking to people like that professor and actually digging in to what gets charged and what doesn't get charged. I think that type of reporting, identifying how the system is actually working versus how we assume it's working is really important. I agree. I think uh, the context is, is necessary. Um, you know, it, it certainly doesn't uh, exonerate Hunter Biden in any way. I'm just trying to show people what happened and the context that matters. I mean, President Biden uh, said that he had done nothing wrong. Clearly, that's not true right. by Hunter's own admissions and this plea deal. So uh, I don't think this is uh, you know just pointing out how this turned out is not some sort of uh, positive thing for Hunter Biden or his father uh, politically either. So uh, it's just important to be uh, discerning about it and ha give people the best understanding that's possible. That's that's all I. 
absolutely can can try to do so that's that's what we that's what we attempt to do here at the reload but we appreciate you coming on and we'll have to have you on uh, again in the future when we get into some more of these uh you know detailed criminal justice uh, stories anytime thanks very much all right ladies and gentlemen welcome back for the weekly news update i'm of course contributing writer jake fogelman joined by reload founder steven gatowski how you doing steve I'm doing pretty good, Jake. Uh, Phillies play tonight, so um, hopefully they can break out of this mini slump here since they embarrassed themselves with the Braves the last two games. Um, I'd like to get back on track. It's June. They're supposed to win every game in June. Um, <laughs> they're still outside the wild card, so uh, we'll see. How are, how are things going with you? Uh, things are good. Uh, I'm actually pretty excited this week. I got a, a new toy that came in the mail um, that I'm pretty stoked about. I uh, yeah. purchased an M1 Grand from the Civilian Marksmanship Program. Oh. Uh, so for listeners who don't know, the Civilian Marksmanship Program works with the federal government, specifically the Department of Defense, to take old surplus military rifles, some pistols sometimes too, but predominantly rifles, Mm -hmm. uh, and make them available for civilians to purchase. And so I was able to, to get an M1 Grand through that program. And I'm, it's, it's been a lifelong goal of mine to get an M1 Grand as someone who's kind of a, a little bit of a World War II buff. So yeah, pretty stoked awesome. about that. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the M1 Grand was the main infantry battle rifle for uh, the American Army in World War II. Uh, so if you've ever watched a, a World War II movie or a show, you've certainly seen one before. You have it with you? That's right. Yeah, it's it's right here. For for all the people watching on YouTube, we get a shot of it. It's still got the oh, CMP tag nice. on it, but here it is. And uh, and you did you look up the background of this particular gun, the serial number, and everything? That's right. So then, when you order from the CMP, there's no there's no way to you know specifically get. Oh, I want a World War II. It's sort of luck of the draw. And mm -hmm. I just so happened to luck out. I looked I looked up the, the receiver. First of all, it's a Springfield model, Winchester, Springfield. A few different companies manufactured these, and I got a, a Springfield one. Okay. And I, uh, I looked up the serial number, and it turns out it was manufactured in the summertime of 1942. So it was during the war. And so there's a, there's a very good chance that this specific receiver you know, saw actual combat or at the very least was issued to someone during the war. So that's, I, that adds some cool points, I think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Uh, yeah, it's a piece of history, really. It's a collector's item. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, the CMP is fantastic. I know that they started uh, selling off the old 1911s uh, a few years back as well. Yeah. Um, I actually should get one of those. I kind of want doing, a Remington. I would say they're model. doing another round of that right now. I, I believe that you can actually try to get a, one of their old 1911s currently. Yeah, I should do. I should look into that. How how hard was this whole process, by the way? Uh, so with the rifles, it was not too bad. You fill out a form. You have to um, obviously you know show proof of citizenship, so like a birth certificate or a passport. Um, you have to get a sign like a notarized affidavit, which is essentially the questions that are on the forty four seventy three that you would fill out at a gun store. So just a notary has to verify that you're saying I'm not a felon. I'm not, you know prohibited person, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then you have to show that you have some sort of marksmanship training. So a concealed carry permit counts for their purposes. So I just put a photocopy of my concealed carry permit. And then you have to actually just mail it in to them. That's the only way to do it. You can't do it through like an online portal or anything. 
Um, and once you mail it in, as long as everything looks good to them, they just get back to you. They say it takes you know two to three weeks. For me, it took about a month, and but just a month later, it ships right to your door. You don't even have to get it from oh, the really? store. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's the beauty of working directly with the government, I guess. Right. <laughs> they can just bypass all their own rules. Right. Um, how much did you pay for it? So this is a uh, service grade. So it, it was nine hundred dollars flat. No, you know, I didn't have to pay for the background check. Didn't have to pay tax. Just flat nine hundred bucks, and it was mine. That's not bad for for you know a collector's item like that. Obviously, there's a lot of a lot of M ones out there, but that's still. I think if you were to go into a gun store and try to buy one, it'd be significantly more than that. Yeah, uh, these days, and especially one from 1942. Right. Um, you know, you get a markup there for sure. So that's a pretty cool deal. Have you shot it yet? I have not had a chance to take it out to the range. I'm actually, you know, really excited to do that. I don't know if I'll be able to get out this weekend, but I'm I'm itching to to test it out for sure. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Um, uh, yeah, I, I should look into I, I should look into getting one of those for my dad. He's not a big shooter, but he is a big World War II buff, like you know, all dads, I guess. Right. Uh, or, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, he uh, he likes the M1 Garand. Maybe I'll maybe I'll pick up one for him for his birthday or something like that. Um, I also want to get a 1911 for myself. I have a uh, I got a, a Remington uh, R1 Enhanced that I've got uh, you know a nice Cerakote um p51 mustang design on it i was gonna uh, say the mustang yeah yeah so this was a gun that i had painted up during uh when i was at the free beacon it has the free beacon logo on it actually for anyone who uh um recognizes the Washington free beacon logo but uh yeah so i, I kind of always have wanted a um a 1911 by remington from really i'd love to get one from you know the early world war one uh run of these guns but uh yeah those are very expensive on yeah. the civilian market um whereas you know if you go through the cmp it's a little bit of a crapshoot like you said you don't get to pick out it's the exact model necessarily but you could end up with uh you know a gun from that era uh quite easily uh, you know interestingly and this will actually connects with our first news story did you know that after the war, the government sold off millions of uh, M1 Garands, or sorry, uh, M1 Carbines, which is like the, the cut down version of, of that M1 Garand uh, to NRA members and other collectors? Um, and this became a significant problem with uh, the National Firearms Act. Uh, have you ever heard this story? I didn't I actually didn't know this part. No. Yes. So if you if you notice in the National Firearms Act, the definition of short barrel rifle is different from the definition of short barrel shotgun. The length of the barrel is different on shotguns. It's 18 inches. Anything under 18 inches is a short barrel shotgun. And for rifles, it's 16 inches. Uh, now, it wasn't always like that. It started off 18 inches for both. However, uh, in the post-war era, the government sold off surplus M1s, uh, the, the carbines, which have a barrel that is 16 and a half inches long, uh, without realizing that they were violating the National Firearms Act, uh, they got they transferred out all these firearms similar in a similar way that they, the civilian marksmanship program works. And this became an issue, obviously, because, you know, that's, 
those guns were unregistered NFA items effectively, which is a felony to possess. Same issue we're dealing with here today with the pistol brace uh, situation. But so their solution, really quite elegant solution, was just to change the law. <laughs> so they, <laughs> they modified the law so that for rifles, it's 16 inches now. Uh, they didn't change it for shotguns, but they did for rifles. That's and funny. I didn't know so, that story. <laughs> yeah. So the government is the largest distributor of illegal NFA items in history. <laughs> um, uh, but then they fixed their own mistake by just changing the law. Um, <laughs> you can do that when you're the government, I yeah. guess. <laughs> um, and they're doing, I suppose that's what they're doing again with this pistol brace situation. They're changing the law without, without actually rewriting it. Right. Um, through uh, interpretations, through reclassification instead of actual legislation, which brings us to our main story today, which deals with um, the Senate's attempt to uh, repeal the pistol brace ban, uh, or at least the vote to do so, which actually lost uh, somewhat surprisingly. I think we have talked about this after it passed the House uh, last week and it was going to the Senate and there was, you know, at least to me, I thought there was a pretty good chance it was going to pass because this is a specialized piece of legislation, right? And really not legislation. So it's a resolution, but it's a privileged revolution, res resolution, sorry. And that means that there was going to be an up and down vote on it. There was no way to, even though Democrats control the Senate, they didn't have any opportunity to block voting on this resolution and they couldn't add amendments to it or anything like that. So they were going to have to take an up or down vote. And they've done this five times previously since Republicans took the House uh, under what's called the Congressional Review Act. And what the Congressional Review Act is, um, is a piece of legislation that allows Congress to comment on or basically undo regulations from the executive branch agencies if they think that they're uh, against the purpose or, or the spirit or the letter of the law that Congress passed, right? So it's sort of Congress's way of saying, hey, your executive agency, your interpretation of this law is wrong. And so we're going to undo what you've done through, you know, federal rulemaking process. Um, however, the CRA uh, resolutions don't require the same sort of uh, legislative processes as normal legislation does. And so um, you've had five of these pass since Republicans retook the House. Uh, which means that they got at least two Democratic votes in the Senate for each of those five resolutions. Now, the president has vetoed every single one of them. And this makes sense, right, if you think about it, because who controls the executive branch agencies making these rules, right? It's the president. And he's probably in favor of the rules since his branch of the government made them, the agencies he controls made them. And so Congress can pass the resolutions, um, but he he still has the opportunity to veto them and to override his vetoes the same process as normal, reg, reg, uh, normal legislation 
meaning you need two thirds of both houses to do it. And they haven't obviously gotten that for any of the resolutions, but still it's a political win when the Republicans are able to force the president to veto something, especially something supported by some of his own party senators. Um, and it looked to me like that was the direction this was going to go in, right? Because I mean, you're talking about a ban that affects millions of gun owners, um, where the practical outcome has been millions of people are now federal felons because they didn't comply with this new rule, uh, as we reported, you know, when the ATF announced that they only received about a quarter million registration applications. And even the ATF's lowest estimate puts the number at 3 million pistol braces. Uh, the Congressional Research Service puts it much higher, of course. But that means that in practice, there are a lot of people who ha right now have an unregistered NFA item. Uh, and that's a significant problem for, I would think, uh, a number of these Democratic senators, but apparently not. They all joined to support or to oppose the resolution to support the, the rule. Uh, Manchin even came out and said, he put out a statement that said this was a, the right balance between stopping mass shootings and um, protecting Second Amendment rights, that he insisted that it wasn't a ban on pistol braces. Um, he didn't answer any follow-up questions that I sent them, like, why does he not consider it a ban? Would he agree to add other firearms to the NFA retroactively like this? Um, he didn't say, but uh, but yeah, so the, it didn't make it through. And uh, I think that's a little bit more significant than people might like to believe on the gun rights side um, for a number of reasons. Yeah, I think the politics of this are, are fascinating because, as you said, a lot of these moderate sort of swing state ish senators have been more than willing to go against the president on these, as you said, these five previous CRAs, especially yeah. the gas stove one comes to mind because I work in energy policy in my other job. But but Manchin yep. was very willing to publicly go pick a fight with the president and go against it. And it's weird that firearms would be the hill that he's willing to, you know, or fall in line with his party over, yeah. considering the state he represents and the fact that he's up for re-election so soon. I, I just think the politics of this are, are pretty, pretty fascinating. Especially because it's it's not like it's uh, universal background checks or something like that that right. mentioned supported in the past. This is a ban. I mean, he doesn't want to call it a ban, but people bought these guns for about a decade legally, millions of them. And now the ATF is saying, well, if you keep if you hold on to those and you don't register them with us, you're a felon, basically. Um, I don't know, you know, <laughs> we we try to lay everything out and how it works so that people can make up their own decision on what they want to call it. I'm very comfortable calling it a ban for that fact, but regardless, it's, it's a very expansive uh, gun control policy. And, and it is surprising to see all of the Democrats on board with it, including Manchin and King and Tester and cinema um, and Hassan. Some of these, I mean, you know, some of them have been a uh, little hit or miss as far as, uh, other policies, but they've all expressed some sort of opposition to new gun bans in the past. Um, and I don't, especially because this wasn't going to become law, right? It wasn't, it wasn't going to make it past the veto. 
Um, so it's, it's a bit surprising to see them go this direction. And I, and I know that the Republicans were surprised that it ended up this way too. Um, I, I talked to a number of Republican staffers in the lead up to this who thought they were going to, they were going to get a, some democratic support and it was going to get through. Um, and all the democratic offices that I reached out to, none of them, none of the swing potential swing voters expressed any, uh, definitive stance against the resolution before the vote actually happened. Um, Manchin's office told me that he was considering it up and then apparently uh, thought better of it. Um, so yeah, the, the politics of it's bad for, for gun rights advocates, for sure. I mean, instead of showing that the president and his party are divided on this issue, it's done the exact opposite of that. And then of course it also creates um, a problem for the legal case against the ban, because um, most of these lawsuits, the key questions aren't about the Second Amendment necessarily. They're more focused on agency power, whether the ATF has the authority to reclassify pistol braced guns as short barrel rifles that need to be registered and taxed and so forth. Um, and so uh, you know, if you had both houses of Congress say, hey, the ATF, you're doing this wrong. This is not how we intended this law to work. That's a stronger argument in court in favor of getting rid of the ban than having the House pass it and having the Senate reject it. Right. Right. Um, I mean, I don't think it's a death blow to the to the lawsuits by any stretch of the imagination. I think they still have a, a pretty solid chance of succeeding. But it does weaken the argument a bit. So in the end, uh, the resolution I mean, it's bad news for for people who are trying to um, repeal that pistol brace ban. And it's good news for President Biden and, and his allies. Yeah, I was just going to say it also presents a, a unified front on this issue in terms of the gun control position, like mm -hmm. you said, for Joe Biden and then for the Democratic Party as well. So, yeah, it does. It does. It, it turned out. Uh, it turned out to be a win for them. I don't really know why this was the, like you, like you mentioned, right? I mean, they had five other CRA resolutions have passed and made it to Biden's desk where he had to veto them. I don't know why uh, the senators uh, on the Democratic side decided this was the one where they're, they're not willing to go there. Um, but, uh, you know, presumably that's a miscalculation by the Republican side because, uh, you know, would they have gone through with this Otherwise, maybe they would have anyway. But uh, I mean, there was some, there was probably a little bit of a towel in the fact that two only two Democrats voted in the House crossed over to vote for this. So it's not a lot um, in in the House. Uh, so even that the moderate Democrats in the House or the swing state Democrats in the House, whatever you want to call them, uh, didn't most of them didn't go for it either. So that probably should have been a little bit more of a tell than than I took it as. Uh, at very least. But yeah, it's also surprising to see something like this go straight party line, because you'd think it, the, if the politics of it, I mean, it just so, it sort of implies that the politics of it aren't very clear to the senators, because usually if it's something where, uh, you know, it's clearly a more right leaning resolution, you might lose a couple Republicans, right? You might lose Murkowski or Collins or Romney. 
Uh, Romney was a co-sponsor of this, first of all, and Collins and Murkowski both voted for it. So it's it was evenly split. The only uh, Chris Coons, the Democrat from Delaware, didn't vote, but that was because he was um, he had a medical appointment, is what his office told me. So I don't think it reflects anything on how he feels about the resolution. I'm guarantee he would have voted uh, the same way as the rest of the Democrats on it. But it's interesting to see no crossovers one way or the other, too. And that right. was, that's sort of my last <laughs> insight on it. I have a little more that I wrote uh, for members over at the Relay, which, by the way, we're having a sale. So this is a flash sale going on right now. Uh, Twenty, The next 20 people who buy a membership get 20% off. So uh, that'll go pretty fast. We don't do sales very often. Uh, for anyone who's listened to the podcast for a while, probably realizes that. But check that out today. And, and yeah, you can you can read the members piece uh, for a little cheaper than normal. But uh, what else we got going on this week? Yeah, so we have a, a fact check from CNN of uh, President Biden, speaking of Biden, that I, I know you contributed on. Uh, he mm. made a series of false statements, as he's wont to do, about firearms. Um, and CNN came out and kind of step-by-step refuted some of the, the falsehoods that he uttered. And I know you you contributed on a few. So, for example, one of them, he said, the NRA itself is immune from lawsuits uh, <laughs> somehow, the, which is news to us, right? That we've been covering yeah. all these lawsuits that the NRA is facing. It's uh, surprising that you would say that, but clearly that's false. <laughs> yeah, that's that's certainly not true. Um, it seems like he kind of, for a number of these, he it feels like he kind of garbled his usual talking points. Because usually what the president will say is, one, that the gun industry is totally immune from lawsuits, which is not true either. Right. <laughs> I believe that's that's also in this fact check. It's not true. They're, they have liability protections for uh, kind of very similar to what most industries have, which is basically you can't sue um, the company for the misuse of its, the criminal misuse of its product by a third party if they weren't directly involved in any way. Right. That's basically what the Protection of Lawful Commerce and Arms Act says. Um, and so the president likes to say that they you can't sue gun manufacturers. You can sue gun manufacturers. They get sued all the time. SIG is being sued right now for, over um, uh, safety questions. Taurus has been sued for similar things. Remington's been sued for uh, the triggers in the, the Remington 700. Yeah, there's a lot of, if there's a uh, product defect, a design defect, you can sue just like you could over basically any product. Um, so he says that a lot. He makes this claim that the industry has is not able to be sued and has extraordinary protections uh, that no other industry has, which is also not true. But and then he'll also say that he's the only one who can take on the NRA and he's defeated the NRA before and they'll defeat him. Like that's another common talking point. And I guess he just sort of mashed them both together and got this new law, <laughs> which is just not true. The NRA, like you said, we've covered it a bunch. They've been sued by a lot of people and are continuing to be sued um, by the state of New York, by the Washington, D.C.'s attorney general, by former donors. It's, the list goes on. There's, they don't have any sort of special liability protection. All right. And then apropos of our last segment, he also said that pistol braces, he says, when you attach a pistol brace to a pistol, it turns it into a gun. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah. it also gives it a higher caliber bullet once you put that piece of plastic, which uh, is not true. Yeah. I mean, that one, I feel like you can just say this is this is just I 
this is just gibberish at this point. There's no, none of this is remotely true. Um, yeah, the pistol brace is a brace. It doesn't change the firearm at all. Yeah. It just allows you to strap it to your wrist or, uh, or forearm and, and makes it a little bit easier to shoot the gun one handed. Uh, people, you can also press them against your shoulder if you, if you want to, they're not designed and intended to be used that way, but that is the thing that makes them controversial is that people will, will do that with them. But regardless, it doesn't change the actual firearm in any way. Uh, it doesn't change how it shoots. It doesn't change what caliber of ammunition it uses. So yeah, the president is just, um, I, it's hard to even try and discern what he's trying to say with that one. Yeah. And then uh, another one that I, I kind of like, because it's a variation on one that he's liked to do a lot in the past that he's been fact checked on, where, you know, traditionally he says things like, you know, the Second Amendment doesn't let you own cannons and you can. Mm. Well, yeah. This time he says machine guns. He said, first of all, he said the sec he phrased it in such a way to suggest that the Second Amendment, the text of the Second Amendment itself spells out certain weapons that are prohibited, which, of course, the Second Amendment is silent on right. types of weapons. <laughs> right. But then he says you can't own a machine gun, which is a little more complicated than that because you actually can, in fact, own machine guns. Yeah, you can, and you always have been able to. Now, there are regulations. That's This, again, goes back to the National Firearms Act. We're talking a lot about the National Firearms Act in this segment um, because it's, it's relevant to the pistol brace situation and also to the machine gun situation, which... Um, now, machine guns are a little bit different than everything else in the NFA because in 1986... Congress did pass a law that banned new sales of machine guns, of fully automatic weapons, to the public. Um, and so you can't buy new ones today as a civilian, um, but you can buy all the ones that were registered before 1986, which is, you know, several hundred thousand of those out there. They're very expensive, but you can, it's certainly not illegal to own them. I mean, it's, and same thing for cannons. It's actually even more true for cannons because. You know, the cannons that existed at the founding uh, weren't regulated and still aren't regulated today. You can buy a black powder cannon without um, any sort of uh, regulation, really. You can buy them off eBay right. if you want to. <laughs> um, they're not very popular anymore, but they're certainly legal. And they were certainly legal at the founding. You could own a warship at the founding if you wanted to. The equivalent of a uh, 19th century or an 18th century battleship uh, you could own. People did. That's what privateers were. <laughs> That's right. how the Navy got started, right? Uh, John Paul Jones, he owned his own ship. It wasn't, uh, it was, that was a private enterprise. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, the president's uh, knowledge of the founding era gun regulations is not, it's not very expansive and it's often incorrect. Right. And then the last one, the last falsehood was a little more forgivable, but still a little bit he exaggerated. He claimed that uh, his son, his late son, Bo Biden, was the first person to use a red flag law. Um, right. He was previously the attorney general of Delaware. Uh, and the problem with this is he, while he was a proponent of red flag legislation and he tried to get one introduced, the red mm -hmm. flag law didn't exist until after Bo Biden had passed away. <laughs> so first of all, red flag laws have existed since the 90s. So he's that whether or not he would have been the first is not you know it wouldn't have been possible but yeah. uh he also uh had sadly passed away before that was even on the book so yeah i mean this one 
the president makes a lot of incorrect statements about his late son for some reason. He claims that he right. died in Iraq, which isn't true either. Um, now, this this the red flag law in Delaware is named after Bo Biden. Right. So maybe that's where this is coming from. But, yeah, certainly it's not true. Um, and, and so it's, uh, you know, just another pretty straightforward falsehood on the president's part here. So yeah, that's those are the the five latest from from the president that uh, that and Wasn't you contributed there, to. I think there was one more right about the. Um, there was one about the the law that he signed last year, and this one wasn't. Uh, I think it was even less um, egregious than the other ones, but he claimed that there was no. Um, that, oh, the boyfriend. There's no loophole. way for yeah. The, that's that, right. That domestic abusers can't buy guns at all now. Period. And I guess the quibble with that is that while the law that he signed last year did expand the definition of domestic abuser to include people who um, were dating partners, it uh, it also included a, a provision that allowed people to uh, regain their gun rights if they didn't reoffend within five years. Yeah. So uh, that was the one caveat to that claim as well. That's right. Um, yeah. So, you know, they kind of got less and less severe as you sort of go down the list, but, uh, and more comprehensible as to how they got, how he got right. to the, the falsehood. But, but yeah, um, you know, the president, he talks about guns a lot more often than we write about him talking about guns, you know, and a big reason for that is, he just kind of uses the same anecdotes over and over again and says the same, makes the same claims, often false claims over and over again. He kind of, not that this is unique to Joe Biden. Politicians do this all the time. They have a stump speech that they go out and give and they hit the same points over and over again. Uh, and so it's just of diminishing news value, I think. Uh, the 15th time he uses the F-15 anecdote about how, uh, actually, I think that's one of his more disturbing ones, honestly, because he's, uh, he's, uh, he talks about the, the tree of Liberty, which is a, a, um, Jefferson quote, right? The, the tree of Liberty, uh, was to be refreshed with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Um, and he says, this is an absurd idea basically, because you need more than an AR-15 to defeat the government. You'd need F-15s or what have you. And, um, you know, it, it's not, I think a great look for the president of the United States to be out there talking about how the government could crush the people if it wanted to. Um, but regardless, you know, he, he's uses that all the time. Uh, basically every time he talks about guns, he'll say the same three or four things. Um, we cover that fact check covers a number of them, but, um, that's that's part of the reason we don't cover everything he says about firearms, because it's just a lot of it's repeated and it doesn't. He calls for the assault weapons ban like every other week. Right. Um, and unless there's some significant change in Congress, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Right. So it doesn't really make sense for us to go out and write about it every single time he says something. Just to explain it for the for the for the listeners and readers, how we sort of approach the president and his comments on guns if it's something new and newsworthy uh generally speaking that's that's when we'll go and, and cover something he says but but you know as the state of the government right now there's unlikely to be new gun legislation 
anytime soon. And, and so there's just not a lot the president can do or say that's going to move the needle at this point. Yeah, uh, no, but it's right. still important to fact check him, right? When he, when he said, I'm glad that CNN did that fact check and I'm glad that they reached out to me for um, a couple quotes on it. So, uh, yeah, so and I'm glad that we were able to bring it to you here on the show. Uh, that That's, uh, I believe, all we have time for this week. Um, and we will be back again real soon. If you want to help support our reporting, you can head over and check out our flash sale right now and pick up a membership. That is how we fund the reload here uh, is through membership dues. Membership is the only thing that makes this all possible. And so if you want to join today, you can go and get 20% off while supplies last. (laughs) Um, But yes, we don't do sales very often. So uh, this is a fairly unique thing. Make sure you take advantage if you are able. Uh, Otherwise, you can sign up for our free newsletter to get a taste of what our reporting is like beyond this episode of the podcast. And, uh, you know, of course you can uh, share this with your friends and family, anyone else who might be interested uh, to help us grow. That's um, a big part of keeping us afloat and uh, yeah, leave a, leave a comment, leave a like, leave a review. All those things help spread the word. So we will be back again real soon. Thank you guys. Oh, the devil's got no